the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How about the parents? The big story on Capitol Hill today is a Senate hearing about the dangers of social media. Mark Zuckerberg of Meta and the CEOs of TikTok, Snapchat, uh, Discord, X, uh, Twitter also testified, and they all took a, a pretty good beating, especially Zuckerberg, who was pressured by Senator Josh Hawley into apologizing to parents in the crowd whose kids had been damaged or killed by using these platforms. Now, there's a movement to get the government involved in regulating the tech companies to force them to create protections for kids. But you know who could regulate this stuff a lot more? Parents. You know, by not giving their kids smartphones. Get them a flip phone, you know, for communication. That's it. Now, how often are you in a restaurant when you see two parents, maybe a couple of kids, and all four of them are sitting at a table and they're staring at their own cell phones and not speaking to each other? And how many kids take cell phones to school? If you heard the testimony about how dangerous these platforms are that can only be accessed with a computer or a smartphone, do you wonder why any parent would give their 12- or 13-year-old kid a tool that can literally kill them? How about saying no? If they're not willing to say no and to keep the smartphones out of the hands of their kids, can they really believe that these uh, smartphones are all that dangerous? How many family gatherings have you been to and seen multiple kids sitting and staring at their own phones They could be looking at porn or talking to a drug dealer, for all anybody knows. So why don't the parents regulate that by telling the kids that they're they're too young for a smartphone? And if the parents don't have the guts to say no, how about having the guts to tell them to leave the phones at home when they go out to a restaurant or go to visit grandma? If you're of a certain age, I'll, I'll bet it's not hard to imagine your father telling you to leave the phone at home or put it away, loudly telling you that if they had been around when you were a kid. Fortunately, they weren't when I was. So maybe it's uh, good that Josh Hawley and other senators are trying to protect the kids, but the parents of the kids could do a much better job, and it wouldn't be that tough. When we come back, we have a guy who used to do cyber work for the State Department who takes those so-called conspiracy theories about Taylor Swift being part of a government psyop seriously. And in our second half hour, lots of people are moving out of states around the country. They aren't moving to blue states. Jeffrey Anderson of the Manhattan Institute knows how many are moving and where they're going. Stick around. Well, sorry, but um, I'm going to talk about Taylor Swift. And before you drive your car into a tree, uh, bear with me here. Um, The latest conspiracy theory that might not be a conspiracy theory is that She's part of a Democrat PSYOP to help Joe Biden get reelected. Mike Benz is the executive director of Force for Freedom Online, and he joins us now. How you doing, uh, Mike? Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, so, hey, Mike, uh, Mike in the control room. That sound bite, can we, is that ready to go? Okay. Uh, I, I want to make sure of that. We're going to start with a sound bite, uh, Mike, uh, from a tweet you put up a little while ago. And uh, maybe you can explain who this woman is and why it's important what she says. Go ahead, Mike. Sure. 
So the first one that's the most famous um, and the most um, most common is working with famous people um, or being influencers to share uh, information or a particular message. So I include Taylor Swift in here because. So <laughs> Taylor Swift was the last thing you heard. I couldn't run what you said after that on the radio, Mike. Uh, you, you got kind of excited there and dropped a few. Uh, well, you said some things that are good for a podcast but not good for radio. So um, who is this woman and who is she talking to and why is it important? Sure. So um, this this uh, clip comes from a hour-and-a-half-long panel discussion at NATO's Center of Excellence. And it's the Center of Excellence for Psychological Inoculation and, uh, and information operations, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe. So Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, all the way into Germany. And this was a cell set up within NATO to try to swing hearts and minds in Europe towards NATO and away from Russia in terms of both its, po- its political, cultural and economic ties after the Crimea annexation in 2014. So they, so NATO began, they developed a doctrine called From Tanks to Tweets, where they declared their new focus to be essentially the political war for hearts and minds, more so than kinetic warfare. And so the Center of Excellence was set up, along with a number of others in that region. And this clip is from a 2019 conference at that psychological operations uh, unit, essentially, uh, about how to, uh, how to win the information war on social media. And on the panel were multiple Pentagon contractors and former CIA officials. The woman speaking here in that clip uh, belongs to a group called Graphica. Now, Graphica got $7 million from the Pentagon to do essentially psychological operations work. They got their start as part of something called the, the Minerva Initiative, which is the Psychological Operations Warfare Research Center for the Pentagon. And then they were deployed to censor the 2020 election and to censor uh, COVID-19 as part, of a, as part of a formal partnership as the domestic disinformation flagger for the Department of Homeland Security. So this is one of these heavyweight operators in the censorship industry and a formal Pentagon contractor pitching to NATO that Taylor Swift and others like her might be used, quote, to, they might, uh, one, of the, one of the things NATO should do is, quote, identify key actors to train and spread desired messaging. And it's a picture of Taylor Swift as she goes on to describe how, how she has been instrumentalized by public health agencies and for get out the vote campaigns in the past and might be similarly of use to NATO. Now, I find this to be tremendously disconcerting, given that this is essentially a military proposal to interfere in civilian affairs and to tip elections potentially in favor of war policies and against what this I mean, they're supposed to answer to the civilian class rather than the other way around. So anyway, I, I put that video up, and uh, it kind of blew up the Internet, and now here we are. Yeah, here, I'm glad you're on. So um, so that this is uh, an example of um, NATO, and that sounds like an American woman speaking there, um, uh, using Taylor Swift or using her as an example for, for on an international level. And so this shows how... It's not that far much of a leap to go from that to having the U.S. government do it on a national level. And they've already done it, I guess. Of course. So, you know, the U.S. government, our State Department, our intelligence community and our, you know, our our Pentagon has has long done this kind of uh, cultural soft power projection 
I mean, at least since the creation of the CIA in 1947 and the reframing of the War Department to the Defense Department and our sort of changing set of international norms after World War II, we had to move into a sort of modality of political control rather than strict military occupation. And so everything from the Marshall, you know, the Marshall Fund uh, for, for economic soft power projection to CIA cutouts like the Congress for Cultural Freedom hosting music conferences all across Europe to try to sort of win a cultural war against Soviet communism. All this has a rich history in American statecraft and is not, frankly, particularly controversial when it happens overseas. The issue here is NATO is is the U.S. It's also sort of U.S. adjacent Western liberal democracies like the U.K. And also on that panel, along with that with that woman who was speaking, who is who's formerly parked at the Johns Hopkins University and also worked at Graphica, as I mentioned, the, the psychological operations Pentagon contractor. But also on that panel was uh, an individual from the psychological operations branch of the British Army for the 77th Brigade, uh, who played a curious role in social media censorship of COVID. But you have this basically U.S., U.K., Brussels joined military alliance who all face a common threat from the rise of populist parties. That's Trumpism in the U.S., that's the Brexit movement and Nigel Farage in the U.K., that's Marine Le Pen in France or Matteo Salvini in Italy or the Vox Party in Spain or the AFD in Germany. All of those parties focused primarily on domestic priorities over foreign, foreign policy and campaigned on scaling back the war state and, and also on cheap energy relations with Russia, including the restoration of the Nord Stream pipeline and other things that are existentially threatening to both the military industrial complex and the and the energy stakeholders who draft on the op, on the activities of the state department and the defense department so they all share this common interest in stopping the rise in eu parliamentary elections in europe and in the u.s presidential election here of parties who might scale back their own power and what you have here is basically a broad daylight planning meeting for how to stop that by basically having the military intrude on civilian media, which, which I think should be a concern to everybody. Um, and would, would Taylor Swift be aware that she's being used for that? Uh, I, I have no visibility into that. I highly doubt that it's something that, you know, um, that she would be particularly keen on mm-hmm. at, a, at a personal ideological level. Uh, Taylor Swift, for the for the the lion's share of her career, has been apolitical and uh, does not seem to have strong beliefs strongly held uh, when it comes to many political and social topics. They do seem to be strong beliefs loosely held on a temporary basis or on a sort of selective timing basis. There was the sort of curious episode of her suddenly turning into a hardcore Biden supporter around the time of the uh, BLM riots in 2020 and in the fall of 2020 when she sort of began a, a strange press release style, perfect King's English set of, of tweets of her endorsement for Joe Biden that looked like it had been printed directly by the State Department. It was so unlike the kind of prose she usually uses. Um, and I don't, you know, there's, there's many, there's, it gets into the realm of total speculation in terms of what her personal thoughts are. You know, obviously the, the fact that her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, you know, has this big Pfizer contract and earned more from the Pfizer sponsorship than from his NFL contract. Does that mean that Travis Kelsey is a 
you know, is a big time pharma bro or was he doing it for the money? These are all things that I, I don't really particularly care to speculate on. The thing that I think is the scandal is that you have these institutions who are not supposed to be political. Our military, you know, everybody competes for influencers. The Trump campaign will compete to try to convert this new Snoop Dogg, uh, you know, endorsement into into votes. Uh, you know, Democrats will try to use other influencers. That's all fair game to me. The issue is, is when you have these institutions like the Pentagon or like NATO, which are not supposed to be Republican or Democrat, they're not even supposed to be conservative or liberal or take any of those sort of values based uh, cleavages in our society to exploit and basically putting their thumb on the press of civilian affairs. That, to me, existentially flips the nature of our democracy when the military uh, you know, supersedes the civilian will. We're talking to Mike Benz. He's the executive director at Force for Freedom Online. Uh, so, Mike, um, your uh, Twitter bio says former State Department cyber. What, what did you do at the State Department? Sure. So I was the deputy assistant secretary for international communications and information technology, which is a long way of saying I ran diplomacy connected to the Internet. So that's everything from the sort of commercial side of the Internet to, plat- to platform governance issues, to AI issues, to security issues relating to great power competition with China or to the protection of our low-Earth satellites and subsea cables that basically form the backbone of our telecommunications system and all of the international affairs and policies related to that, including, you know, I mean, probably most relevant to, to today, part of what I worked on at the time at the State Department was the EU Digital Services Act, which is the big EU censorship law that currently has ex Elon Elon Musk under the gun of huge financial penalties unless they censor what the EU tells them to censor. That was something that was um, that was that was hotly contested by our State Department while I was there, and um, it ended up after my, <laughs> after I left, it ended up getting resolved heavily in favor of the censorship side, and we're now living in the aftermath of that. What's the significance of uh, Taylor Swift's music being bought by the Carlisle Group? And you can maybe tell us who the Carlisle Group is. Yeah, so the Carlisle Group is, you know, they sort of became famous as the private equity arm of the Iraq War and of the Bush, Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, um, Frank Carlucci, uh, sort of Houston energy military nexus, and all of the scandals around war profiteering from Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and the Gulf War era, which is to say that you had these companies like Halliburton, you know, which was run by you know, Dick Cheney. He was the CEO of it uh, in between when he was vice president for the Bush administration and when he was a, he was a congressman, um, uh, you know, mostly, mostly funded by the oil and gas industry. And so they got a $7 billion no-bid contract for uh, for uh, for reconstruction of Iraq, uh, the Carlisle Group got many similar contracts and invested in those those same companies. And it was a group that was run by Frank Carlucci, who was the Secretary of Defense by Ronald Reagan. He was the one who put in place basically the war architecture that the that the Gulf War would then run on, and uh, then would you know became the head of the private equity firm that cashed in on the war policies that he had constructed. And so you have this basically private equity uh, 
exactly what Smedley Butler warned about in 1936 in his book, War is a Racket, about the commercial interests that profiteer off war. A hundred years ago, he wrote that. The Carlyle Group is probably the paradigmatic example of that in the world today. And the Carlyle Group uh, was a part of this very strange transaction where they were the ones who put up the money for the purchase of Taylor Swift's entire music discography back in 2020. And so you have this strange situation where you have the, the you have Pentagon contractors pitching to NATO that Taylor Swift can be useful for the war machine. You have the war machine's biggest private equity branch personally investing in Taylor Swift's career. Uh, and then, you know, you have this uh, you have this sort of strange situation where this where Taylor Swift is being rolled out to endorse the war machine's preferred political candidate here in the U.S. and potentially all across NATO so that all the different EU uh, elections from from West Europe in the U.K. and France to Central Europe through Italy and Germany all the way into the Baltics to trying to swing that and use Taylor Swift as a sort of get out the vote for pro-EU parties. So to me, it's an example of the nexus between big politics big government and big military that is uh, illustrative in that respect. Wow. So, um, you know, since this, since, um, since she's been showing up at games and, and uh, it's, I don't know when it first started being talked about that it's a possible uh, plot by, well, the Washington Post said this, uh, that came right out and said that uh, Biden's secret weapon might be Taylor Swift with the campaign. But, um, and we only have about two or three minutes left here, but um, I, since there's been a discussion about this since the, since the AFC Championship game yesterday and on Monday, um, Republicans, conservatives were told to shut up. This is just a conspiracy theory and uh, being told that it's ridiculous to even suggest that Taylor Swift would, could somehow be u- being used as a uh, some kind of a pawn or a, or a willing person to promote the Democrats. So I got two and a half minutes left to try to explain this. What, what, how do you, what do you think uh, from what you've seen and, and what you've just described here? Is there anything to this? Well, we're just quoting their own words back to them. You know, they, they can't say, uh, oh, Taylor Swift isn't being, you know, used uh, to be able to, you know, potentially tilt the, the election when they themselves have been publishing nonstop for the past three months an avalanche of headlines saying exactly that. I mean, I, I don't think people are going farther, particularly than what they themselves said. It's almost like uh, they regret saying it. And now that their own audio is being played back to them, they want the volume turned down on it because it looks so bad. Well, what should we be expecting after the Super Bowl and, and as we get closer to the election? Well, it might be something as, you know, as, as traditional as the same thing Taylor Swift did in 2020. You know, which is basically a series of tactically timed, uh, you know, uh, public statements endorsing Biden and trashing various elements of populism or Trumpism. It doesn't have to manifest as anything particularly, you know, elaborate, although it may or it may not. Uh, but you know, what I would say is, is there has been a really interesting amount of work done to try to market size how influential Taylor Swift would be in the election. I think there was a recent um, article from about three days ago, which did a large scale national poll of Taylor Swift supporters 
to gauge uh, whether they would change their vote depending on who Taylor Swift endorses. And uh, the, the result of the poll was that a full 20% of Taylor Swift's audience would vote for whoever she tells them to vote for. And when you magnify the scale of that audience, which is basically every household in the country in some fashion, or at least a, a, a huge proportion of it, um, that is, you know, as, as mainstream media itself reported, that could be enough to tip swing states. But again, I don't consider that to be illegitimate, that respect of it. I mean, you could say the same thing if, you know, if Kid Rock had 10 times the audience that he, that he had, or if, you know, or a hundred times the, everybody uses that. To me, that's fair play. It, uh, but you have to, but we, we can say that it, it is being used to that effect. And, you know, again, as I come back to the scandal to me here is that you have these institutions who are not supposed to be political, who propose getting in on that. And that is where it starts to become uh, not only inappropriate, but frankly, uh, kind of existential in order to make sure that our that our non-political organs of our civil society uh, are stay out of that fight. Mike, where where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Mike Ben's Cyber, all one word, Mike Ben's Cyber. And you can find my foundation's work at foundationforfreedomonline.com. Hey, Mike, I hope to have you on again. We'll be watching this. We've got a long way to go to the election. But uh, I've just become, I guess, more interested in what uh, Taylor Swift is doing. I didn't, couldn't care less about two weeks ago, but I guess I do now. Hey, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye. Okay, that's Mike Benz, Executive Director of Force for Freedom Online. I'll be right back. Now, people are on the move, um, and they're not moving to blue states. They're moving to red ones, which shouldn't really surprise anybody. Why would anybody want to move to California or New York at this point? Jeffrey Anderson of the Manhattan Institute joins us now. He has the numbers on who's coming and who's going. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, John. I'm actually uh, with the American Main Street Initiative, but the uh, uh, City Journal, um, of course, is put out by the Manhattan Institute, and I think that... Uh, yeah, that's where the, I saw you, yeah. So yeah. you're, you're the Main Street... Make sure you get the plug-in. Uh, right. <laughs> the American Main Street Initiative. Okay, I'll remember We're the next We're a think time. tank for everyday Americans, covering the things the coastal elites don't want to cover. <laughs> American Main Street Correct. Initiative. Initiative. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, So I can see moving from north to south uh, if you live in western PA in February, but it's about a lot more than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's really quite striking. I mean, the Census Bureau puts out stats on where Americans have been moving, and if you start the clock in uh, April of 2020, right after it became apparent COVID was here, and, and the most recent numbers are in July uh, of 2023, the the movement has been striking. I mean, people have have clearly said we want to move out of these states that have COVID mandates and lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, whatever, and uh, and and we want to move to free states, states that actually secure the the blessings of liberty and and respect Americans' freedoms. So um, it's interesting to me that COVID is uh, too fresh in my mind forever but it but it's it's kind of getting a little further back there in the rearview mirror um it's just kind of interesting to me that people are still making decisions this long after all the insanity to move yeah 
It is interesting. The trends seem to be continuing. The same states that people wanted to move to, uh, say, in 2020 or 2021, they're still moving to. Florida is still leading the way. Um, South Carolina, on a percentage basis, as a percentage of population, is is, uh, the number one state people have moved to in the most recent year. Um, And people are still moving out of California and New York. And um, so I think it shows, I think, how much Americans really cared about these sorts of things. The establishment elites would have you believe that uh, nobody really cared about all the mask mandates and everything else, all the lockdowns. But I think they were a huge matter. I mean, one of the biggest public policy matters um, that we've ever dealt with in this country in peacetime. And, uh, you know, I think Americans have shown their clear preference for what kind of government they want by voting with their feet. Yeah, I guess maybe you could say that um, people are just using what they saw the government that they were living under do to them when COVID came along, and they don't want to see it again. And they maybe it woke a lot of people up as to what can happen to you if you live in the uh, live under the wrong government. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you, you've probably heard of people anecdotally who have, have made these moves. I, mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I have family members who moved out of Portland, Oregon, to uh, the greener pastures of South Carolina. And um, I think you've seen this all over the country. And it's what's also striking is it's not just that people are moving from Democratic states to Republican states, although there's a lot of that. But it's people are actually picking the Republican states that were genuinely free during the COVID period. And that, and that certainly wasn't remotely all of them. As you may recall, most Republican governors imposed mask mandates. Of course, of course, it was always governors, right? We never had legislatures. No, no legislator ever imposed a mask mandate, which is a, a reminder we need to be under legislative rule in a republic, not, yeah. not rule by governors. But it was it, these governors, uh, every Democratic governor imposed a mask mandate, and about 60% of the Republicans did. Well, it was the other ones, the the minority of Republican governors who avoided the mask mandates, who eschewed that. That's those are the sorts of states people are really moving to. Like Florida, most you know everyone knows people. A lot of people have been moving to Florida, but also states like Arizona, Tennessee, Idaho. These were among the only. There were only ten states, sadly, that did not impose mask mandates, and they're among the ones people have been moving to the most. That's interesting because. Moving and moving your family is is not a small thing. And so it it just seems, I guess, almost unbelievable to me that as bad and as stupid as everything that we saw with COVID was, to say, I'm picking up and I'm moving from uh, California. Well, I can see California to Idaho, I guess. It's not that long of a trek. But it's it's a it's a completely different world, California and Idaho. To say, I'm going to I, I got to quit my job. I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to do everything that's um, involved in moving from one state to another because they made me wear masks, and and, and I hated that. Uh, believe me, nobody hated them more than I did. But <laughs> I, I just can't imagine moving my entire family and uprooting everything based on that. Oh, I can imagine it. I mean, like if your kids are forced to wear masks in school for, I guess, yeah. Uh, I mean, some of these states had had mask mandates going into 2022, unbelievably in the schools. I'm saying, mm-hmm. and you know, that's that's just horrendous. And and I've I've said personally, if if I 
if my state ever tried to mandate a vaccine, a COVID vaccine mandate for kids, I'd, I'd be out of there rather than having my kids go to school in that state. So um, I, I can certainly understand. I think the, the mask mandates and the, and, the, and the vaccine, the vaccine mandates were less common, but um, were almost particularly horrendous. Um, yeah, these are these are real signs of are you living freely or not? And of course, they also went hand in hand with a lot of the lockdowns, like uh, you know these states that said you couldn't go to church, uh, you know, yeah, free exercise yeah. of religions in the Constitution, and yet it was clearly abridged during COVID with no real uh, effect other than what people could do, which is move somewhere else, move somewhere better. Yeah, um, and um, this is something that. Um, I, I would think might come as a surprise to some of the people in government in those blue states that that what they did was um, that the response to it was so strong that people said, I'm out of here. Yeah, you'd think that they'd be noticing. Um, I'm not sure whether they are or not, but I mean, California is just a classic example. I mean, two of the states that people have moved out of the most are California and Hawaii. So clearly they can't blame it on people moving to better weather. No. Uh, you know, but like California was the first state to lock down. It was uh, the most obvious just state that was willing to blatantly violate people's uh, liberties. And, you know, Hawaii didn't get as much press, but it had the longest mask mandate in the country over 700 days. It required high school athletes to get the experimental COVID vaccines or, or not play. Um, and, of course, you had New York and Illinois were among the leaders of people exiting those states, and they were among the, the worst with all these mandates, and people are still fleeing New York in droves. So, I mean, you'd think they'd notice. I'm sure they notice when they start looking at the tax revenue, and they notice <laughs> they're, they're losing that, and, uh, or electoral votes, but that's about the only thing that gets their attention, I think. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that Hawaii is commonly referred to as a paradise. <laughs> and <laughs> to leave paradise over something like that, that means it really got on your nerves. Yeah, they really were about the worst, though. And despite the fact that um, I'm pretty sure the, uh, the COVID death rate per capita was lower in Hawaii than in any other state. And I don't think it, you know, they'd probably say it's because of their mandates. I think that's ridiculous. There's been no correlation that anyone can see between the mandates and the death rates. But um, Hawaii may have had some, I don't know, they had being closer to China, they had more exposure uh, to other viruses that had some common threads or something. But um, they, they pretty much were unscathed by COVID except for their horrible mandates. We're talking to Jeffrey Anderson. He's uh, You can find his piece at City Journal about this, uh, city-journal.org. He's with the American Main Street Initiative. Um, so Republicans are gaining at the expense of Democrats. Um, I'm just wondering, um, is there any way to tell, are the, are the people who are leaving the places like California, these are the same people who keep electing People like Gavin Newsom and and uh, Gasson, the uh, the district attorney, and and no matter what hell they have to live under, they keep reelecting these people. So I'm having a tough time believing that the Democrats are leaving, uh, and maybe it's more Republicans who just said I can't take this anymore because the Democrats well, sure, keep reelecting these people. Yeah, I'm sure it is a lot of like you know. Republicans leaving California to go somewhere else. But I mean, 
how many Republicans were left in California? I mean, Percentage-wise, they were already so such a small percentage. I got to believe it's also a fair number of Democrats who, um, who kind of you know they're willing to talk a good game when it comes to these policies until they really hit them hit them directly themselves. I think that was one of the interesting things about the COVID period is a lot of the backlash um, was um, across the spectrum politically. I mean, you had your you had your people on the on the left who were just can believe every last thing that the CDC or whoever told them about masks and what have you. But then you had an awful lot of other people on the left who were fed up with being told their kids couldn't go to school and, um, you know, and, and dealing with the masking. And, um, you know, I live in Virginia where Glenn Youngkin won the governor's election in the midst of all that, largely campaigning against that kind of thing. And, uh, and Virginia has got, you know, at this point, is a somewhat Democratic-leaning state. And so it was, to some extent, Democratic voters who put him over the top. So I don't know. I'm sure it's a little bit different in each place. But uh, I, I find it reassuring to see Americans expressing their clear preference for state governments that, um, that respect their freedoms and don't impose such things as mask mandates. Yeah, apparently people kind of like freedom. Um, <laughs> so, there, but there's any, is there any reason to believe that Aside from population and electoral votes and uh, and uh, representation in in the House and all that stuff, um, any reason to believe that it's going to change the electoral map that much? Well, yeah, the coastal, movement. I mean, you're talking like in a presidential election. Yeah, yeah. I, I just well, I just didn't, yeah. I guess start with that. Just um, I mean, Florida was already turning red. You would assume that the, what is it, 800,000 people that moved there, uh, which is an unbelievable number, um, most of, they're not gonna, they're not gonna make it any less red. Well, but if Florida gets more electoral votes, it's a yeah. bigger prize. Yeah. And, you know, if it stays red, then it's, then that's a, a good development for Republicans. I mean, electoral map can, in a close election, um, a few shifts in who has electoral votes can make a big difference. I mean, what did Bush beat Gore in, 2000 by what four electoral votes or yeah. something like that um so it can make a big difference and we're talking about some pretty substantial numbers like you say the 800,000 people who have moved to florida and this is that's how many people moved there minus the people who had moved out so they got they got 800,000 819,000 net uh, just from other states and um you know as i note in the piece that's bigger than the combined populations of miami and orlando yeah and Calif- california on Meanwhile, lost about the same number of people as the combined populations of San Francisco and Oakland. Let's say so that again. That California lost how many? The, the, the combination of San Francisco and Oakland in population. It's that's a, a big number. It's a huge number. <laughs> and it's, it's so it's like uh, it would be like um, the population of Pittsburgh, which is uh, the city's about three hundred thousand, but the metropolitan area is you know two million something like that. It's it's like half of the people in Pittsburgh moving out uh, and and heading for Florida, yeah, which is a huge chunk. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> as you know, I mean, all elections in in Pennsylvania revolve around Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. If half of Pittsburgh left, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Now, is any reason to believe that the further we get away from the um, the COVID insanity, as we talked about in a minute ago, uh, that the migration from those states might slow down a little bit? 
Well, you would think it would start to slow some, but I, I really do find it striking that in the most recent, this is, so this is covering a three, a period of a little over three years, and in the most recent year of that, you still see Florida leading the way as far as states people want to move to. You still see New York and California as the ones people are moving out of. Um, a lot of people are moving to Texas. That's the runner-up state. These numbers haven't changed a whole lot, and as a percentage of the population, it's South Carolina's moved to number one, and but it was already up there. Um, it's uh, and the the biggest loser um, biggest losers continue to be New York, California, Hawaii, Illinois. I mean the same ones that had. I don't know. I mean, so far the trends have stayed remarkably consistent. I don't know if people sort of take a while to take action on something. Um, you know, not everybody can just leave their job right away or what have you, but. Um, it seems like the effects of these policies is carrying over longer than I would have guessed. We're talking to uh, Jeffrey Anderson. He is the uh, he, he wrote his piece at um, cityjournal.org, city-journal.org, but he's with the American Main Street Initiative. i got a couple minutes left. Uh, I want to go to, if you don't mind, I, speaking of Florida, uh, you wrote a piece uh, for the City Journal uh, not too long ago, um, uh, the headline is "Why DeSantis Couldn't Beat Trump." Do you want to give us the Cliff Notes version of that? <laughs> well, I guess the Cliff Notes version is that I think it's actually kind of part of a long-standing trend. If you look at Republican presidential campaigns going back fifty plus years, with all the way back to the when the convention system was left behind in favor of the open primary system, um, Republicans almost always go with the next in line candidate. It's typically the person who was the runner up the time before, you know, uh, you know, going way back to the the seventies, Reagan was the runner up to Ford and then he won. Bush was the runner up to Reagan and he won. It just keeps continuing. McCain was the runner up, then he won Romney. Then he won. Um, with very few exceptions, that's who wins in this election. It was sort of not so much the next in line candidate as the already at the front of the line candidate in Donald Trump. And, uh, and so I think that, um, you know, it's something of a continuation of a long trend of Republicans being reluctant to embrace new blood, for better or worse. Um, you know, I think uh, and I think in light of that, it was it was a tough time for DeSantis to run. But he's um, he probably benefited from running and getting his feet wet in a national campaign. And I think he's well positioned to be um, Donald Trump's heir apparent. Um, Part of what I talk about in the piece is I think it's very much a populist party now, a Main Street-oriented Republican electorate, and I don't think they're going to embrace anybody who is viewed as an establishment candidate like, say, Nikki Haley. Yeah, it must be a tough nut to crack if it's uh, – they, they, you got a guy who they thought was next in line. He's been indicted uh, 91 times, and, you know, and he's going to be 80 years old before his term is up, and they still wanted to stick with him. Yeah, I, think, I don't think there's any question the indictments have made Republican voters all the more inclined to want to support former President Trump. Uh, um, I'm not sure how much of that was by design from the Democrats or not, but that's clearly been the result, I think, is that Republicans have rallied around the president for what they, I think, rightly see as politically motivated indictments. Now, how these indictments will play out in the general election with independent voters is, is quite another question and be interesting to see in the months ahead. Well, I'm out of time, uh, and I, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, Jeff. Always good to have you. My pleasure, John. Good to talk to you. Okay, thank you. I'll be right back.
Here's some breaking news for you. One of the slimiest politicians in Washington history, maybe, John Kerry, you know, he's uh, stepping down as the uh, U.S. Special Climate Envoy. So he's been replaced by Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden has picked his replacement, and it's someone who's actually a little slimier, maybe even a lot slimier than John Kerry. It's John Podesta. You remember him? You talk about nauseating. And th- both of these guys, <laughs> How lo- and, I, and believe me, you could come up with plenty of Republicans who you could say the same thing about, but how long do you have to look at these people? I'm old, and, and, and I, I, so I, it, it's, I can't even imagine what it must be like for people who are younger who keep looking at these old men who are being put into these positions. John Podesta. You know, I thought we were done with him when Obama was gone. We, we, could have, we would have had to look at him if, if Trump hadn't beaten Hillary Clinton. John Podesta. He's going to be flying around on a private jet telling us all that we uh, can't have a gas stove. Just imagine that. Oh, boy. Boy, does Trump have to win in November. I'll be right back. I mean, no, I won't. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.